do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there, I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. Please call me Andrea. Welcome to Talk About Talk. This is where we check in to improve our communication skills, both professionally and personally. This week, we're talking about humor, funny talk. <laughs> Here's the thing. I know I'm not very funny. Maybe I can be clever sometimes, maybe. But I would like to be funnier, and I love comedy. I love watching stand-up. The truth is that many of us would like to be funnier. And I was thinking about this. Have you ever noticed in conversations when people are talking about their ideal mate, they'll list attributes, you know, tall, dark and handsome or whatever. People will also often say someone who makes me laugh. The truth is we prefer to be around people who bring us up, not down. Well, here's your chance to learn what the research has to say about being funny. Yes, it can be learned. You'll also meet a stand-up comedian named Hillary Anger Elfenbein. And yes, Anger is her real last name. Her maiden name actually. That is kind of funny, don't you think? Anyway, I met Hillary when we were classmates years ago. Yes, she was funny then. And whenever I think about her now, I see a smiling face and I hear laughter. Since then, Hillary's had a glowing academic career. A few years ago, Hillary, now Dr. Elfenbein, decided to take up stand-up comedy on the side. Gutsy, right? I thought she would be a great person to talk to about comedy, partly because as an academic, she would be particularly conscious of learning how to be funny. Before I introduce Hillary, let me share with you some research that I've compiled about being funny, including types of humor and what the research says about how to be funny. As always, you do not have to take notes. This is all documented for you on the talkabouttalk.com website under the podcast tab. Okay, let's start with the benefits of laughter and humor. You may have heard that there are physical benefits as well as social and psychological benefits associated with laughter. I read about some of these physical benefits on the Mayo Clinic website. So Dr. Tepper, the doctor that I interviewed for the recent podcast about how to talk to your doctor, would definitely approve. Yes, Dr. Tepper, I'm referencing high-quality online resources. According to the Mayo Clinic, laughter is the best medicine. Laughing actually changes your blood chemistry. It releases endorphins, it relieves pain, it releases T cells that increase your immunity, and it reduces stress hormones. Laughing also lowers your blood pressure. So, if you have high blood pressure, maybe just go watch some stand-up. Laughing also burns calories. So I looked it up and laughing burns about the same amount of calories as you would burn by walking. So we're not talking hardcore cardio here, but think about this. If you spend the evening watching comedy and laughing, that would be like going for a walk, right? I'm thinking that's a good reason to watch comedy instead of some sappy drama. We just need to make sure that we aren't sitting in front of that comedy with a beer and a big bowl of buttered popcorn. I'm also thinking that going for a walk with a friend and making each other laugh the whole time must be roughly equivalent to sprinting, right? Okay, maybe not quite. But did you know that laughing is also a great ab workout? Have you ever noticed you can really feel your stomach muscles after a good laugh? There are also social and psychological benefits of laughter. Laughter mentally disarms people. It also gets attention. People always turn to see what's so funny, right? And if you're the funny guy, people will think you are clever and smart. 
So, there are many physical and psychological benefits associated with laughter. Speaking of psychology, I have to say something about nervous laughter. If you Google nervous laughter, you're bound to read about Stanley Milgram's obedience experiments from the 1960s. Do you remember Stanley Milgram from your psychology class? Let me quickly remind you. So, Professor Milgram told subjects, that is, the people participating in the research, that they were to act as teachers and they had to shock, physically shock, the learners every time the learners answered a question incorrectly. Can you imagine? Well, the truth is that the learners were actors or Confederates, and the shocks were not real. But the subjects, that is the teachers, didn't know any of that. So as you might imagine, when they were administering the shocks to the learners, many of the subjects experienced extreme tension, stress, and conflict. And Milgram noticed that many subjects laughed nervously when they heard the learners' screams of pain. Of course, the learners were acting, but again, the subjects didn't know that. And many of the subjects responded with, nervous laughter. Hmm. This and other research highlights that laughter is sometimes used as a defense mechanism to project dignity and control and to guard against overwhelming anxiety. People will even laugh to help others overcome awkwardness. Have you ever noticed that? But then, ironically, the situation becomes even more awkward because we're pretty good at detecting fake laughter, right? And then there's the whole question of whether we're laughing with someone versus at them. It's like, are you making the joke or are you the Aha! joke? And sometimes people like to make themselves the joke. You've probably seen comedians do this. It's called self-deprecating humor. There are so many types of humor that comedians use, and this is just one. Let me explain a few more of them to you. In addition to self-deprecating humor, that is when people make fun of themselves, there's also physical or slapstick humor. This seems to be particularly appreciated by kids, you may have noticed, but many adults appreciate it too. Then, there's wordplay. You know, like when someone uses a pun. I found that people tend to either love wordplay, thinking it's very clever, or they absolutely hate it. They groan and roll their eyes and accuse people of being punny. Personally, I am one of those people in the latter group, for the record. The third kind of humor is simply joke telling. I say simple, but honestly, I'm always impressed when people can just rhyme off joke after joke. I guess it's just memorization, but it works. Maybe that's a good place for me to start in my quest to be funnier. The opposite of memorizing jokes is improv. Improv is unplanned, unrehearsed comedy. It can be particularly engaging since the audience is probably feeling empathic anxiety for the person on the stage. Hopefully, though, the laughter is real, not nervous laughter. If you ever watch stand-up, you would notice right away that many comedians focus on taboo topics. Religion, bodily functions, race, sexism. This can be funny to some. It really depends on the audience, right? And again, it can be particularly effective if it's self-deprecating. Then there's dark comedy, or comedy that focuses on depressing or morbid topics. It's also appreciated by some, but definitely not by all. And again, that nervous, anxious laughter may actually be what you're hearing. You've probably heard people say when they're laughing about dire things, like say illness or mortality, they'll say, we had to laugh. What else could we do other than laugh? Well, just a few days ago, Anderson Cooper's mother, Victoria Vanderbilt, died at the age of 95. I heard this clip on the radio when I was in my car, and it made me laugh. 
She was literally lying on her deathbed, and her son, Anderson Cooper, was videotaping her. She started laughing, then he joined in. Then she heard him laughing, and she started laughing at him. I never knew that we had the exact same giggle. I recorded it, and it makes me giggle every time I watch it. Anderson Cooper says he still laughs when he hears it. And if you want to hear more, you can just go to the link on the Talk About Talk website. So yes, laughter is contagious. We mirror laughter just like we mirror many other emotions. Now I'm going to list several things that you can try if you're like me and you'd like to be funnier. First, practice. Don't groan and roll your eyes. This is good news, people. We can practice and improve our humor. As you will hear from Hillary, the stand-up comedian, being funny takes practice, and it takes a lot of practice to be good on the stand-up stage. But there are some things that we can do in our everyday life, that is when we're not on stage, to be funnier. Maybe start by asking yourself, what makes you laugh? If you find something amusing, other people probably do too. So go ahead and amuse yourself. The next thing is a big one, a great hack for becoming funnier. And I kept coming across this point over and over again when I was preparing for this episode. Can you guess what it is? It's archiving. Think of things that you've said before that make people laugh or that amaze people in an amusing way. Archive them, write them down, and don't be afraid to use them. For me, personally, my funny stories are often related to my children. My 12-year-old saw an ad for some designer perfume in a magazine. He did a double take at the word eau de toilette and announced, they just call it that to make 12-year-old boys laugh. Everyone within earshot was laughing hysterically. I posted his quote on social media and people definitely LOL'd. People are also amazed at the large quantity of food that's consumed in my household every day. I get comments in the grocery store all the time from cashiers and other shoppers like, are you stocking up? Uh, no, this will take two days to consume. What? And then there's the length of the grocery store receipt. It is shocking. And apparently it's funny too, as long as you're not paying for it. So there you go. The first two ways to improve your humor. One, think about what amuses you. And then two, think about the stories that you've told that make other people laugh. What else works? Well, surprising people, going against expectations or going against stereotypes. This often makes people laugh. Similarly, exaggeration often makes people laugh. One piece of advice I read over and over again was this, be brief. You probably know this from experience, but long drawn out stories are not funny. Sometimes the funniest jokes are just one sentence. Speaking of sentences, when it comes to comedy, have you heard of the one-two punch? It's where you say one thing, then you say another, then you say something ridiculous, the punch. Or put another way, instead of one-two punch, it's normal, normal, funny. Comedians use this all the time. Bear with me while I give this a try. Here goes. So people ask me, why do I like podcasting? Well, one, it gives me a chance to research topics I'm passionate about. And two, I love teaching. But most of all, I love talking without seeing my kids roll their eyes. Seriously, I love that. It's such a rare thing for me. Okay, here's another. So what's changed since I started podcasting? Well, one, I notice sounds a lot more, like construction and landscaping in my neighborhood or the bar fridge in my family room. 
I never used to notice those sounds, but I hate them now. And two, my house is tidier because I often conduct guest expert interviews in my dining room. And three, another thing that's changed since I started podcasting is I don't raise my voice at my kids anymore. Not ever. I need to save my voice for podcasting. So instead, I use a megaphone. And I am not kidding. Don't believe me? I used to yell, dinner's ready! Now they get the megaphone announcement. Attention, attention, dinner is ready. Get down here before it gets cold. Yes, I swear I have a megaphone in my kitchen. So there you go, the one-two punch. I'm not sure if you think that's funny, but my kids' friends think I am hilarious. Another comedy technique is using callbacks. Callbacks are also known as circling back. So you may have experienced this when you're in a conversation, when you or someone else relates back to something that someone said earlier, and this can be really witty and funny. You've probably seen stand-up comedians do this, especially towards the end of their shtick. You've probably also noticed that a lot of stand-up comedians are self-deprecating. They share embarrassing moments. Apparently, people love to hear others put themselves down because they themselves like to feel superior. Hmm. That reminds me, I have a list of do-nots. When you're trying to be funny, do not joke about religion or race or politics. I heard some advice once that I thought was wise. A comedian said, do not ever say anything denigrating about someone when it's something that they can't help. Good advice. I leave you with that. Now, I'd like to introduce comedian Hilary Anger Elfenbein. As I said, Hillary's an accomplished academic who started doing comedy later in her life. But I thought this made her the ideal guest expert for us since she's very focused on the learning process and learning to be funny. Hillary, or Dr. Elfenbein, earned bachelor's degree in physics and Sanskrit and a master's in statistics and a PhD in organizational behavior, all from Harvard University. She's been a business school professor at the Olin School of Washington University in St. Louis since 2008. Previously, she worked at UC Berkeley, Harvard Business School, and Monitor Consulting. Dr. Elfenbein's research focuses on emotion in the workplace, with particular emphasis on emotional intelligence and cultural differences. So as you can imagine, this gives her an incredible lens through which to examine comedy. Her academic work has appeared in many top journals. In a moment, you'll hear Hillary share when and why she started doing stand-up. What you won't hear is that she's also doing very well in the comedy scene. She was recently nominated, like I mean since I recorded this interview with her, as a semi-finalist in St. Louis's Funniest Person Contest. If you go to the show notes on the Talk About Talk website, you'll find a six-minute video of Hillary on stage. She is awesome. One of the things that makes her so funny is how completely disarming she is. She is, as you'll hear, a genuine and lovely person. She's also an incredibly accomplished academic. And she is raw and she's real. I guess what I'm trying to say is that when she's on the stand-up stage, she swears like a trucker. But don't worry, we'll bleep out the profanities. Here we go. Thank you so much, Hillary, for joining us. so much for for getting me to sit down i i've been like so scattered all semester and i was really delighted to just have this on my calendar and i think the listeners and i would love to hear because i did not see this on your 
radar when I knew you, I think of you now as the student that always had a smile on her face. So I'm not surprised. Oh, there we go. There's the smile. I'm not, and laughing. I'm not surprised that you're a stand-up, but you know, I, I wouldn't have seen it coming. So my first question is, when and how did you start doing stand-up? Yeah, you know, I didn't see it coming either. I don't think growing up I ever thought of myself as particularly funny. And what happened was that um, I fell in love with the classroom and then being in front of the room. And I really think of myself as a natural introvert. I feel like I was introverted throughout, you know, throughout elementary school. I was definitely the person who didn't really understand what a party was. Like, isn't it just the same people who already see each other, but now they're in a room? I don't get it. Right, what, right. What is, what's special about that? And it wasn't until I started teaching that I started to really come out of that shell more. And students would, would laugh a lot and tell me I was funny. And, I, and it really was one of these reflected self moments where it took other people to reflect that part of me for me to actually realize it was there. I had it maybe in a little bit in the back of my mind, um, but never thought I would pursue it until um, I had this little bit of a midlife, I don't want to use the word crisis because crisis makes it sound bad, but I would say a midlife inflection. So when I turned 44, I realized that 44 is not for most people a really big um, inflection point. But for me, so many people in my family who, who, well, my mother was at the time ailing and she passed away a year later and she was in her late 70s. And my uh, great uncle who I was helping to care for, he was uh, actually getting close to 100, but he had had Alzheimer's since he was 88. So maybe I'm making a, a short story too long, but there was something about that number 44 that he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's when he was about 88. And I thought, you know what? This is my halfway point. And, wow. and in a, but not in a scary way, but in a really loving way that I thought, okay, I've, I have, I, as much as I've had, I have that much more. So when some people reach that midlife moment or realization, they go off and buy crazy things or they have an <laughs> affair, but yeah. Hillary turns to stand up. There was something else that happened at the same time, too, which was that I got an endowed share, which, as you know, in academia is, it's the highest promotion the university offers. Congratulations. So I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. When you get an endowed share, they throw you a party. So they invite, um, your whole family is invited and the top brass of the university come and, and you get a, you get a half an hour talk. And... I treated this like my first half-hour comedy special. Oh, good so for you. I scripted it down to the syllable and made sure that it was, it, I mean, it was, it was really one of the best days of my life. It was one of these one-night-only performances. I wish I could do it again. It, was, it really worked. Um, but it was, it was down, really down to the syllable. I was trying to, to just take the work that I do and, and bring it out for people in a way where they could feel why it was fun to me. But at some level, it's still, there's always something very symbolic about it being the highest promotion, the last promotion. And so then the question is, now what? Mm-hmm. Now what? And so where is, so I'm, I'm at my halfway point. I, I've got I've got no promotions left in my job. And then the question is, now what? I love how you um, are one of those people that just follows I love your passion. Scripture. You have to. And this is actually why I, I don't teach undergrads here in the business school. And part of it is that I don't understand how you can be so boring so young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't relate to them. The, the business Says MBAs, the physics, I, Sanskrit, 
uh, OB, business, and stand-up comedian, right? The Renaissance woman. I have a master's in statistics. Of course. Of course you do. (laughs) So the first time you did it, you were, you said, highly scripted right down to the syllable. And how has that evolved? Like, tell us, you know, what the journey's been like and what have you done since then in terms of stand-up? So the first time I tried it was just under three years ago. Okay. And it's funny just thinking about about how far you've come at something. Um, my first set was basically um, a disaster. And when I got up to do it, I, I made the mistake. I used to I used to take a drink. I have a drink for my nerves before performing. Actually, I stopped drinking. <laughs> how long has it been since you had a drink? So as of a few days ago, it was two and a half years. Really? Yeah. You know what it was, and it's actually, and I don't mind if any of this makes it into the, the conversation online, is that it was um, it was the day Trump got elected. So I'll always remember that date. It was November 8th, 2016. And uh, I just felt like if I were to drink during the Trump administration, that I wouldn't know when to stop. Oh my God, that is funny. That's definitely going <laughs> so, in. <laughs> I just, I just got to quit while I'm ahead. That is funny. I will never do that again because I was just uh, um, really flustered, you know, by, and the place where I did my first um, open mic what is this, is this really loud bar where two thirds of the people are, are, are facing the other direction. And so I have a question and, about that. Do you, knowing that two thirds of the people aren't even listening, do you actively try to seek their attention or do you just ignore them and talk to the people that are listening? Well, the in this particular case, they're facing away from you, <laughs> so there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing I could do in in that particular bar. But to your point, though, the, of the people who are facing in the correct direction, I think if I could make eye contact with anybody, I tr- I would try okay. to to seduce them into viewing the set. But I don't think as a, as a beginner, I didn't, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to, how to win the crowd over the way that I, I feel now, like I, I feel now just more confidence. I don't know how much more skill I have, but I'm more comfortable taking whatever skill I do have and, 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 um, and applying it and, pushing, you know, pushing the audience to try to be part of what I'm doing, if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. And your learning curve is probably more advanced than most stand-up comedians because of your experience in teaching. I agree with that. I think it's different when I, I you know, there's something transferable about working with an audience, but then there's some things that aren't transferable, like some bad habits you get from being in front of the classroom. Uh, like I own the room in class, right? right? There's a power dynamic. You're grading my them. Room. Yeah. I'm grading them. And, and I get to, I get to make the rules, right? The rules of the room, like right. no devices, you know, no laptops, no phones, uh, you know, who speaks, right? I, I'm, it's like conducting an orchestra, right? You get to point at which hand speaks. So you have this huge power differential mm. and you, have, you have a power differential, but you also have credibility. So that, that actually gives you some bad habits because in standup, you've got basically 10 seconds to build credibility. They owe you nothing. Right. They've paid to be there probably. Yeah, they feel like you're there to serve them. Right. You're not there to judge them. Right. They're there to judge you. So the way I handle hecklers in class and in, in comedy are very different. So in class, and it's, it speaks to this difference in power that you have. What I do in class is I very delicately say, let's talk during the next break. And I say it so sweetly and softly. That Love it. 
that it's really clear to everyone else, I'm not giving in to this person, but that we're going to take this offline. Right. It's hard because you don't, you're actually not even trying to win that person over. You're trying to win the, everyone else over. Exactly. With, with how you respond. Because that person, you assume they're a, they're a goner. But now in comedy, I'm really lucky that I haven't been heckled because St. Louis is so polite. <laughs> in St. Louis, there's there's really almost no heckling. You need to I, go to New York. I know. I will. I, I will. If I go back home, so I'm from New York. I'm from Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and if I go back, I know I will. I, I won't know how to handle the the this Midwestern nice that I've grown accustomed to over the past fourteen years. So my brain's exploding here with questions. So so how would you handle that then? Would you just throw it out there? I grew up in Brooklyn. I know you guys are hecklers. I know you're nasty. I know you're aggressive. I've been doing stand up in St. Louis where everyone's really sweet. Just bring it on. Do you do that? What would you do? <laughs> uh, well, I think my my um my comedy style actually I got introduced as a sweetheart of St. Louis comedy, a sweetheart, and 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 I got told afterwards by a few of the people who who were there that um you have this really sweet, delicate style that makes your hard edge completely unexpected. Oh, awesome! So, so I, I think that. I think people don't yet want to heckle the the you know the person who's being so so um, kind. I actually have really dirty sets. They're really dirty. Okay. So a lot of a lot of expletives, a lot of body part explicit. I mean, because I talk a lot about what happens to women in the workplace, what happens to women um, relating to motherhood, relating to the pressure to look younger, and these kinds of, of pressures and stresses that women go through. And that's most, that's all, almost all of my comedy has been under this broad theme that I call that women have to deal with. Oh, I love that. I was going to ask you what your best joke is, but it sounds like you have a whole riff about how it sucks to be a woman and what we should do about it yeah what we should do about it for sure and i mean some of what i perform about is trying to put for myself a a pleasant or a you know a happy ending on things that are very stressful in real life I have a new set that I've been performing about teacher ratings and the, the things that people write in their teacher ratings that are that women get and men don't get and at one point I say in the set, you know, I envy the men. I really envy the men for their topic relevant feedback. It was so cathartic saying that. And I, I, you know, I don't know how funny that is to somebody outside of that experience. But I think for someone inside that experience, the idea that, that you would envy men for having professional developmental feedback actually being developmental. And professional. And professional, yes. And I, I got two pieces of advice when, when I was first teaching at the university. One was, if you want to do well in your teacher ratings, make sure all the students think they're going into the final exam with an A. Oh, interesting. And I didn't believe it. And the first time I taught, didn't go so well. Second time I, I taught, I took that into consideration. I got a teaching award. <laughs> it, it, my understanding is that self-deprecation, personal, and taboo topics are typically sort of the low-hanging fruit. Do you agree? I do. Well, I think some of it is easy, can be hacked. 
right? Like hackneyed. So, so things like, um, you know, taboo, breaking taboos just for the sake of it, I think, you know, you can see through that. Um, but what I, what I love other people doing and what I love to do myself are the, are the truly personal pieces. Like in really digging in there and getting to the core of what's pain, of that pain. Right. And you can see when somebody, it's better than therapy, right? Working through your pain by, by being able to reframe it and laugh at it. I would love to see you. Are there any videos on YouTube of you doing stand-up? Well, I, I keep getting told to take them down. <laughs> Before I got started doing this, I was a little bit worried about it because I thought, you know, here I am about to identify myself, and I do identify myself as a professor at Wash U during the set because part of how I start is by, by introducing myself as a psychologist and that as a, that one of the interesting things about being a psychologist is that it professionally qualifies me to notice a lot of fucked up shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, awesome. So I, I identify my, myself, my my place of work, and I the first before I started out, I actually asked the provost. I asked him whether he uh, thought it was okay for me to be doing this, and he he said very professionally that you know he stands by freedom of speech for academics and and all this. But I don't I don't think he realized at the time that I was going to be in public talking about my vagina. <laughs> You didn't give him an example. So, for example, if I said this or if I said that, would that be okay? You didn't do that. Yeah, I should have actually given him more explicit. I should have given him a list. So what if I talk about, um, you don't know, but, uh, but so I, I've been doing this around town. And for a while, I, uh, the only people who knew were, were just my Facebook friends. But then at some point, it, it got to be known in the school in a way where current students knew. And current students had, had sometimes seen, seen pieces on YouTube and distributed them. And that's actually when I took it down. It's different if someone comes and sees me in person. But I, I had a a, a performance a few months ago where a whole group of my current students had found out about I have no idea how they found out when and where it was but they were all there oh wow that must have been bizarre it was really a two worlds colliding thing yeah. but um, it, one of the things that's been really fun about stand-up is that it's gotten me out of my bubble most of the people I know here are academics Right. They're academics or they're my kids' friends' parents. Right. These are the two ways that I know people, essentially. Right. And so I'm in a bit of a bubble. And the, and now all of a sudden I have this other life where my best friends in comedy are these 20-something-year-old hipsters. Amazing. <laughs> I, I feel like they're mentoring me. You know, so, so and my closest friends in comedy are, are people who, you know, they're mail carriers, they're, you know, they work at pizza shops, they, you know, they, they do all kinds of things, they're in college, you know, they're, they're just, they're just doing everything. You and, know what it is about you, Hillary, you have an incredible growth mentality. You're talking about learning something from 20 something year old postal carriers, right? And you mean it. <laughs> so who are your favorite comedians? My very, very favorite comedian is Amy Schumer. Okay. And when I first started, that was before she, she became a mom. And I used to say that that I didn't like to box myself into a particular um, style. But if I had to say one, it would be, what if Amy Schumer had kids? Yeah. And now Amy Schumer does have kids. 
So, so that's exciting for me too. Um, I, I, I would say though, people we don't necessarily think of as comedians, but people we think of as quote unquote humorists, which I'm not sure exactly what the difference is, but my biggest inspiration of all is David Sedaris. I've seen him read his work a, a few times. He's come through St. Louis and I, I had the chance to, um, to get an autograph and it was like this hero worship moment. How do you prepare? You've gone from, as you said, <laughs> preparing literally every syllable to how does it look now well the when I write I, I don't I've probably written about 10 different pieces that that have worked and the way I start writing is that I think about something that I've, I've told people that they've laughed at so things like with the teaching evaluations that I used to that I used to joke about um, about my my friend actually my, I have a good friend who used to comment on her teaching evaluations about her right on her teaching evaluation did yeah. we, did somebody ever do that to you I got the and this is not this is going to be edited out I got the Andrea is the biggest in the university good thing she has a nice ass. oh my gosh we don't edit that out people need to hear that that's just <laughs> that's that this is what we go through right. I mean, I have to say, and you don't edit this, like, or edit out if you feel like it. But, um, but, but back on the record, that, um, you know, when I when I was growing up, I just assumed I was in the free to be you and me, Gloria Steinem, Ms. Magazine generation, where I just assumed that all of these barriers had been broken through for us. Yeah. I thought the glass ceiling was over, no. and and that we were going to be we we were going to. Be, be able to benefit from all of these heroes that had come before us and paved the way for us. And I was unprepared. I, I was, was too. Uh, okay, I want, I want to get back to the how you prepare. You know, say um, a week from today, you're going to be on stage. Yeah. So I do? I do actually, I script it out to the syllable still. You do. But, but doing that allows me the freedom to, to vary. I, I know, ironically, and I tell this to I tell this to students who are starting to teach for the first time, starting to do presentations for the first time, that the more you practice something, the more you get it down, then then the more then the more extemporaneous you ironically get to be. Yeah, I understand that even from podcasting because I will write out a script and I used to read the script and now I look at the script. It's like a it's a crutch, but it's actually helped me prepare, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's how it helps to prepare, and and then then because you're prepared, you don't need it. You don't need to read word by word, right. but you understand the pathway. You know, for me, because almost all of my stand-up has been feminist humor, I've so far had primarily one transition, which is okay. Other f- up sh- about being a woman. Nice. <laughs> Talk to you about tonight is, <laughs> and so it all hangs together that way. Something that's been scary for me in in this comedy topic has been where where do I want to go with it and. And what's scary about it is that I think if you really want to do this for a living, you have to work very, very hard at it. And it looks so effortless. And when you see comedians on TV, they just look like they just show up and talk for a few minutes and you know, talk for half an hour. How hard could this be? And I think looks easy when you watch people who are the very best in the world at it. But I think the best stand-up comedians, they're constantly trying things a hundred different ways. They're playing, they're, they're playing the same joke um, and, and writing down every, every inflection that makes it go over better versus worse. And I've been actually a little bit scared about, you know, do I really want to do this to that level and, and invest like that? And, and I don't know that, I actually don't know the answer. Yeah. But one thing I do know, though, is that as a profession – 
the profession I'm, I already have my dream job. Right. So I think that's what holds me back a bit in comedy because there's some some of these these twenty something hipsters, right? This is what they want, and they live for those moments that they're on stage. They're investing in it in a way that you know. First, I don't have the time, right? I have a, I'm a mother of two, and I have a full time job that's kind of a full time plus type of job. But there's also something I guess that holds me back, and I'm not sure how to articulate it. But I think part of it is when I read books about the, the career side of stand up, and it gets. Can you tell me like, what those books? are? Sure. One of them is called Mastering Stand-Up. Okay. And the other is called Don't Wear Shorts on Stage. I'm going to put links to those in the show notes. Um, Oh, yeah. And one thing that I found really hilarious in these books was how practical they were. So they talk to you about things like how to save money when you're touring on the road. So they talk about going to the grocery store versus eating fast food when you're touring on the road. Right. And where you're going to stay when you're touring and who you're going to be staying with. What are some of the things that are, I guess, common knowledge amongst comedians, the do's and the don'ts? So, for example, self-deprecation is a do, but putting down a minority probably is a don't. Yeah, nobody does that anymore. Right. Right. And nobody makes, I mean, the the amount of openly sexist jokes are fewer. Uh, Like, you don't see... I mean, you, like you don't you don't hear rape jokes anymore. You just don't hear them. One time, I was one of the only two women in a in a program, and somebody said introduced me as uh, bringing more estrogen into the room. Wow! But you don't. That's about the worst. You you just I don't know. It's it's interesting. Um, me- members of minority groups make fun of their own group. Right. So it's like self-deprecation. So you said, you know, you're mentoring new professors when they're teaching in the classroom. If you were mentoring a beginner stand-up comedian, what are some of the things that you would share with them? Interesting. Um, I would say first to practice. I think the same thing I say to the new professor, case teaching, the kind of teaching we do where where we we go through case studies. It's very much like improv, where it's giving a presentation of of like these 15 minute presentations at conferences of your research projects. That's probably the closest to stand up. Practice in front of the mirror. Practice standing up and holding a cucumber as your your microphone. I, I just I stand. I actually stand holding my hand up in the air just to really mimic and. Yeah, and and to try to practice as many times as you can, and time yourself, and record yourself. And this is this is advice that everyone gives everyone else: is record yourself and listen to it. And that's how you know the difference between people who are working hard and people who aren't working hard. Is if you record yourself and listen to it. I've taken the recording I've made and watched it, listened to it, and typed out a transcript of it and made notes about where people laughed. Ah. And that's how you know you're a hardworking comedian. And I think I actually despaired a little bit after reading these books and realizing that, you know, um, if I were to really succeed at this, succeed wildly at this, my life would be actually tangibly worse than it is right now. Very successful people are on the road um, 30 weeks a year, and they go to they go to places like Boise, Idaho, and, and they perform, you know, Thursday, two times Friday, two times Saturday, and then they drive home. Wow. And it's... It's so my my upside is actually very limited right now by my by 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 the the weird fluke of already having my other dream job. When people learn who are in other spheres of your life, be it you know um, other academics and or your kids' friends' parents who meet you that way, when they find out that you do stand up, do they suddenly expect you to be funny? 
Oh, that's so interesting. Well, I do think that when people find out there's a certain amount of street cred, so I do feel like people think that's a cool hobby, right? I feel bad to say it impresses people, and I, I kind of feel a little bit ambivalent about that because I wonder sometimes, should I be more, like, is it immodest of me to go around telling people that I do this thing that has this kind of cachet to it? You know, sometimes people will say, oh, tell me a joke then. And I'll, what I'll have to say is it kind of has to be somewhere dark where people are drinking and <laughs> and it has to be, and it's dirty stuff. So I'll warn people that it's dirty stuff. It depends on who's asking. And that but, gives you even more street cred, right? People are like, whoa. <laughs> well, I, I once had an experience, though, where I invited someone who then invited a lot of other people, including the former dean of the business school and he brought his wife and oh, you know, and then they brought a, a big donor to the university who's got to be in his 90s or thereabouts and his his son was there to to help him with his uh, walking and, and i just thought oh i just thought oh no i i hope they realize that this is dirty stuff do you ever adjust your content when you're on the fly you know i think some people are better at that than i am i'm modular so i could substitute a completely different set but i don't think i can make a adjustments to my sets very well because I, I practice them too much to be spontaneous and I know that's a beginner's flaw that I need to work on but it's not it, it's not a place where I've gotten to yet where I can really adjust on the fly the way in teaching I can right in teaching I totally can I have certain jokes that I don't do if they're not with me um, you know there's certain things you can pull off if the audience is with you but if the audience isn't with you then then you have to be more subtle and, and you, you can't really joke around with people who aren't on your side. Well, that's, that's generally good advice, I think, even outside of the realm of stand-up. Do you have advice for people who want to be funnier? Ah, uh, well, uh, people who want to be funnier. Um, what I try to do is I think about times when people did laugh at things I've said, and then I try to build content around that. So here's another question is what are the differences between t telling one person a joke or making one person laugh versus making a room laugh? Interesting. I think when it's one-on-one, -on -one, I'm really laser focused on the other person trying to just be one with them. When it's a whole room, I assume that I have nothing in common with anybody there. Oh. I have to. I, I have to assume that I, that that um, I have to start from scratch. And this was something my one of my mentors early on told me that actually and this is the the mailman I was mentioning before. Um, he, I, I, w I was telling him that um, there were things I wanted to talk about, but I just didn't think they would be relatable. And he said, "No, don't be relatable." He said, "Don't don't." do what you think other people can relate to, right? Because it's a, it was a bar full of 20-something-year-olds, and I kind of wanted to talk about motherhood, but I didn't think anyone would relate since no one else in that room was a mom. And, and he said, no, you don't understand. Don't try to start out relatable. Try to bring them into your world. It was mind-blowing advice. Because then I started talking about all kinds of things. I don't just say course evaluations. I point out that, you know, at the end of the semester, I get these teaching about, you know, even just little things just to, just so that if anybody hasn't been to college, right, right. They, would, they, they wouldn't know offhand what you're even talking about. Yeah, you have to add but a little phrase for context. I try to make the context even funny. So when I talk about the um, the course evaluations, I say at the end of the semester, I get these teaching evaluations. And then I add, and this is supposed to be my professionally developmental feedback. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so, so actually, and this can be on the record. So um, I, I really was on the defense of the first time I taught. So I had gone, I had done the MBA program at Harvard where the students really were out at bars late at night talking about how to get their female professors to cry. Yeah. They really were. So there's none of this paranoia like, well, I wonder if they're trying to make me cry. No, they were. They were. Yeah, they were out of bars talking about it. Yeah. And so I was really on the defensive when I first got to Berkeley as a professor and thought, all right, I'm not going to let these motherfuckers make me cry. <laughs> and, and they're actually very, very nice people. So I'm do still... you tell that story when you're on stage? No. You should. That's funny. <laughs> Well, I, I, I mentioned a little bit the, the part of how I got myself out of that problem, though, which is that um, when I first started out, so I did go on the defensive, and I was like, all right. Oh, so I, I mentioned in, this, in, in, in the routine that um, the problem with being a woman in the MBA classroom is that they either want to fuck you or they don't even want to fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not clear which is worse. <laughs> Well, so I went on the defensive, though, because I thought, you know what, I'm not going to let these motherfuckers bring me down. And then, though, I was, but I was pregnant, and I was just, right before the semester began, I popped out. I was showing when the semester started, and I thought, oh, they're going to smell weakness, like sharks smelling blood. They're going to, and, and it turned out to be the opposite. They were very, um, they really treated me like, um, like I was their aunt, you know, like their, their older sisters. And they, they were, they, there was none of that, like, do they want to fuck you dynamic because you're pregnant? I actually go into this in the, in the routine, like, whom do you never want to fuck? I mean, they either want you or they don't want you, and which one is worse? Um, that that who, who do you never want? Well, you don't want somebody who, you don't want your mom. Oh, my God. So you, so you swear like a motherfucker on stage. Do you swear in the classroom? Never, no. Never? No. No, I don't feel like it's appropriate. It's I feel like it's a line for me. I'm not mm. sure why. Mm. But on stage, on stage, man, it's all bets are off. Fascinating. So this is this is um, is cathartic the word for you? Is, yeah. is being on stage cathartic? Very, very much. Yeah. It's like floating in air. It's weird. Like the only way I can perform is if I'm in flow. Like I, it's if if I even overthink it, if I think for one moment about anything. It's all over. It has to be like this out of, it's like an out of body experience. Wow. Yeah. And I hate, I, the part of why I like to, to practice so much is I hate every, I hate the, the, the timing lights. So when you're, when you're performing, they give you a light when you have one minute left and then they give you a light when you're supposed to be done by now. And I, I really don't like paying attention to the lights because there's nothing I can really do about it. It's not like, I can change up anything. I mean, I can't really go faster, I guess. So I try to practice in advance, rehearse in advance, so that I'm going to be within time and I can ignore these outside stimuli. Brilliant. So one of the hardest things I learned actually was how to let people laugh, believe it or not, because um, I would just keep going. You know, so I would just be talking over them laughing. And it actually took reading this book, this Mastering Stand-Up comedy book, that where they, they talk about how laughter, first it, go, first it rises and then it falls, and you want to wait until you're past that crest. You can't wait until all the laughter's gone because then you're in dead space. You know, then you have, a, you have silence for a moment. But you want to wait until the laughter's on its way down. So it's a little bit hard to know exactly where that moment is, but I was I was talking over people who were trying to laugh, and so I've had to time it in a different kind of way. I know that seems weird, but that's no, been 
that was one of the rookie Rook- mistakes. I have heard that comedy is all about timing. <laughs> you agree? Yeah. And I don't think I have the best comedic timing. I'm working on it. <laughs> it's a work in progress. Pregnant pause. <laughs> I'm going to move on now to the five rapid fire questions that I okay. ask every guest. Okay. Okay. First question. What are your pet peeves? Okay. This is going to sound horrible, but ending a sentence with a preposition and splitting an infinitive. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. I became a grammar snob later in life, so I'm one of the converts. You know, converts are always the worst. It wasn't until college that I really learned grammar, and and I just can't help it. I do heroics not to end sentences with prepositions. Every now and then I add something to the end of a sentence just so that the preposition wasn't what it ended with. See? I just did it. I ended a sentence with a preposition. Second question. What type of learner are you? Definitely visual. So in class, for example, I have people sit in the same place every time because I'll remember what they said throughout the whole semester, but I won't remember always who said it, but I'll remember what seat it came from. Ah. I'll remember what direction it came from. Does that affect you when you're doing stand-up? Uh, being visual? When I'm doing stand-up, I'm trying to make eye contact with people. I'm trying to, or I'm trying at least to seem like I am. Um, it's dangerous because if you actually make eye contact with somebody who isn't into it, you're worse off than if you just seem to be looking out at the at the audience. Yeah, I can imagine. It's a good question. Okay, question number three. Introvert or extrovert? This is an interesting one. So I grew up an introvert, but I became an extrovert. I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but I still have a self-sense of myself as an introvert, and every now and then people correct me. Because I do go to, well, this conference that we go to every year, right, Academy of Management, and it's 10,000 people, and I actually look forward to it. Wow. So are you, I, I know that you're outgoing and you're confident now. Maybe it's that your confidence has increased, but where do you get your energy from? Is it from being alone and writing and researching, or is it from being at those conferences with 10,000 people? No, it is from writing and being alone. You're I mean, an introvert. I, I am an introvert. I'm an introvert who... Uh, okay, question number four. What's your communication preference for personal conversations? Um, you know, this is going to sound weird, but um, I'm, I'm really old-fashioned, and I like a good phone call every now and then. Um, realistically, on a, on a more day-to-day basis, I, um, I tend to use Facebook Messenger, actually, of all things. I, they're not even regular text messages, because real texts are a bit too immediate. Right, they show up on your lock screen, and you and you have to answer them. I grew up at a time when people just talked on the phone all the time. I don't even know what we were saying, but this was before call waiting. And my mother actually got me my own phone line with my own separate phone number because she was tired of missing calls. That's hilarious. That's funny. I forgot about call waiting. We thought that was so modern. It was very modern. But we had, instead of call waiting, when I was in high school, you could call, you could tell the operator that you needed an emergency interruption to someone else's call. And you used to do that. If my boyfriend's sister was on the phone too long with her boyfriend, then I would do an emergency interruption. Hello, operator. This is a teen emergency, a teen (laughs) telephone emergency. You need to make an interruption on this phone call. Nice. 
Okay, last question. Is there a podcast or a blog or an email newsletter that you find yourself recommending the most? So on email, I really like Travis Bradbury's Emotional Intelligence um, uh, blogs. And he has, he has an email that, that links you to his blogs on LinkedIn. And then as for podcasts, there's a comedian named Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S. And he has a podcast called Here We Are. Okay. And he and I was on it once, so of course I liked it. Oh, was, I'm gonna go listen to that one. It was really fun. No, you you will enjoy it. He's a, a professional comedian. He tours. He does all kinds of great work. As always, we'll put links to those in the show notes so people can check them out as well. Thank you, oh. thank you, thank you. I appreciate it so much. Well, Andrew, this was a lot of fun. So thank you, thank you for giving me this wonderful morning. It's been a pleasure. It's yeah. real, really a pleasure. It was great to reconnect, and I, I have to say congratulations on everything on uh, on the the chair, the endowed chair, and on being a stand-up comedian and a mom. What an amazing human, right? I would characterize Hillary as a lifelong learner, and obviously she's happy to share her learnings about comedy and how it compares to teaching in the business school with us. Thank you, Dr. Elfenbean. Did she surprise you with the tone of her humor? Disarming, right? That reminds me. We will be focusing on the topic of profanity in an upcoming podcast episode. I interviewed a knowledgeable linguistics professor from the University of Calgary named Professor Darren Flynn. He was fantastic. I learned so much. That episode will be coming up very soon. In the meantime, there are several things that Hillary mentioned that I just want to quickly summarize for you. First, practice makes perfect. Most comedians are not born funny. They had to work very, very hard, as she says. And confidence comes with practice. On a related note, learning to do stand-up is similar to learning how to give presentations. You might recall in the coaching podcast with elite founder Stephanie Rudnick that Stephanie, just like Hillary, talks about running through timed speeches, or in Hillary's case, stand-up gigs, with no audience, over and over again, until she nailed it. Hillary even said that she scripted it down to the syllable. And I loved what Hillary said about hecklers. Off tape, I'd shared a story with Hillary about how an MBA student in one of my classes heckled me once. I really wish I'd heard her advice about how to handle that situation. She says... Don't worry about trying to win over the heckler, or in my case, the obstinate student. Rather, try to win over the rest of the audience. Of course. Another important thing that Hillary said was about the context or topic of the humor. At one time, she was worried that some audience members might be alienated by her stories about teaching in academia or about motherhood. She followed the advice of a fellow comedian who encouraged her to use that material that was so personal for her. She does that now with great success, being careful to include relevant context to make it relatable. Okay, that's all I got for you today. I hope you found this entertaining. I hope this episode made you laugh and smile, and I'm totally fine if you were laughing at me. I really hope that you learned some pointers about how to be funny. I want to thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, And I'd really, really love it if you would subscribe to the weekly email blog. Just go to talkabouttalk.com to easily sign up for the blog and to access all of the past blogs and podcasts. All right, that's it. Thanks again for listening and talk soon. (laughs) 